I brought props. I didn't do this in the first service, but uh, Paul Crossett was talking about origins, where we started. There it is, the Inn of Happiness, a little ramshackle shack that had uh, had vision and excitement and, and motivation and just a few people inside of it. I'm going to pass that around. We're a multitasking society. You can handle distractions, right? And from that little shack was born the vision. That's not only where we are, but where we're headed. And when you think about the expansion or the explosion of the gospel from five people to 500, from $7 that first uh, Sunday to our annual budget is about $800,000 right now, from that little inn of happiness to this beautiful but sometimes cramped facility, what you're seeing is an illustration that parallels the journey of the gospel in the book of Acts. Acts is the story of the explosion or expansion of the church. But so that we don't miss it, uh, what God loves and values most is neither budgets nor buildings, but people. God loves people. And the story of the book of Acts is not about the expansion of financial resources or properties. It's about the explosion of the gospel as it takes hold in the lives of people. And after 10 months, 24 messages, 1,040 or so very patient minutes invested by you, we come to the very last message in that series that we have been working through on the book of Acts. If you've been with us over these past few weeks, you know that the entire last section, almost a third of the book of Acts, concerns the exploits of a man named Paul, one of the early leaders and missionaries of the church. Specifically, it concerns the trials and the sufferings of Paul. Everything that could possibly go wrong for Paul goes wrong in those last few chapters of Acts. A failed assassination attempt, uh, a mob, a riot, he's knocked unconscious, he's held for trial on trumped up charges. The trial is appealed to Rome, so he is taken on chains on board a ship. And on the way to Rome, the ship wrecks and it goes down and he is he's saved and eventually makes his way to Rome. And because we have been following the exploits of Paul so closely, you would expect that the book of Acts ends with the resolution of his story. That, that would be the climax. What happened to Paul? How did God consummate his faithfulness in the journey? And if that's our expectation, prepare to be disappointed. Uh, The book of Acts is anticlimactic if you think that it's about the Apostle Paul and about his story. But it's not. The book of Acts is about the gospel, about the good news of Jesus Christ. It begins with the gospel. It, It pulsates and breathes with the gospel, and it ends just as it begins with the proclamation of the gospel. If you have your Bibles, open them up with me to Acts chapter 28, and I want to look with you at the very last two verses in the book of Acts, Acts 28, verses 30 and 31. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house. There is Rome. He stayed in Rome, and he welcomed all those who came to see him. And he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. What happened with the trial 
what happened to the threat of execution? What happened to his grand missionary plans for Rome? The books of, book of Acts doesn't say anything. It ends as it begins with the gospel. He proclaimed the kingdom of God. He taught all about Jesus Christ, and he did it with boldness and without hindrance. Maybe you're wondering, though, because we are naturally curious, whatever happened to Paul? I want to spend just a couple of minutes on that, and then, and then we'll take a bit of a turn, and we'll spend the rest of our time with, with the subject of our final message on, on finishing well. But Luke, he leaves enough hints in the final few verses of the book of Acts to allow us to figure out a little bit about Paul. You remember he, he's been dragged to Rome in chains to stand trial again, this time before Caesar. He's taken there by boat, the boat wrecked, he was saved, and eventually he, he gets there. Now, he, he's not shackled in a prison somewhere, he's under house arrest, which means they, they rented a home or he rented a home, and he was free to entertain visitors there, and he could be about the work to which he was called, which again was the preaching of the gospel. And for two whole years, he stood there and he awaited the matter to come to trial. In, in Roman law, that was the statute that your prosecutors, your accusers had two years to bring their charges before the court and make them and to have them judged. So when, when Luke says he was there for two whole years, this is the hint. This is the suggestion he's dropping. If it didn't happen in two full years, it didn't happen. The prosecution never made its case. They never showed up. And we probably know why. I mean, it's a long journey. And it was dangerous, as we know, because... Well, Paul's ship wrecked. It was long and it was dangerous. And the last time they tried a trial, it didn't go well at all. And Rome was very impatient. In fact, they were quite severe with people who brought trumped up charges, spurious and malicious charges before the court. Whatever the reason, it never went to trial. Acts doesn't say it, it hints at it, but we know from history and we know from tradition that Paul is acquitted. And he doesn't stand trial on those charges. And it's only several years later, he's still working in Rome, that he finds himself once again on the wrong side of the law because of his faith. He finds himself imprisoned, and then he finds himself eventually under sentence of death. And it's in that setting that he writes those telling words that Grace read for us just a few minutes ago. And what I'd like to do with you this morning is to think about, about those last moments, those last days in Paul's life. But not so much about Paul himself, but about how it is that he was able to finish so well. How can you finish that strongly? And, and he's quite clear that, that he did finish with strength, and he, and he finished with certainty. Those words in 2 Timothy 4, they resonate with that feeling. How is it that he finished so well? And what we're going to try and do is tease out these four perspectives on life that carried Paul not only through those difficult final days, but carried him through all of his days, all of his ministry days, all of his missionary days, all the ups and downs of the work of the gospel to which he was called. Four perspectives. And you see them there. If you have your order of service, you can open to the, to the facing last page. And there they are. Life is a struggle. Death is an adventure, but history 
is a masterpiece. And the gospel cannot be stopped. Okay, so that's our, that's our trajectory for this morning. But let's start sort of where, where Acts stops. In the middle of the struggle. Right before you get to the heart of the text uh, that, um, that Paul is writing in 2 Timothy, you have those great verses, 6, 7, and 8. 2 Timothy 4, 6 to 8. I'm already being poured out, Paul says, like a drink offering. The time of my departure is near. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. So first thing Paul says, and it's absolutely clear in his mind, it's been this way all the way along, life is a struggle. That's struggle language. I've fought the good fight. I've run the race. Uh, the word there for, uh, for fight is actually the word to wrestle. You know, the Greco-Roman wrestling? It's the word agon. Guess which word we get from that? Agony, right. There's an agony to this. It's the agony of any athlete who knows what it is to strain and train and sacrifice for the sake of a goal. Life is a struggle. How many of you have been to England, to Britain, or lived in Britain, traveled a little bit in Britain? I never have. But I'm going to tell this story like I have. <laughs> if, if you've been, isn't that awful? I've never been to Britain. The northwestern part of Britain, there's a beautiful lake, Lake Windermere. I can almost picture it like I was there. <laughs> On the shores of the lake, there's a magical little village that comes uh, right out of the, uh, the, the side of a, uh, of a little mountainscape. And then there's a winding path that goes all the way to the top of that mountain, the Kirkstone Path. As you turn the road, I just remember it so well, as you... <laughs> As you turn your road, there comes into full view a sign that says simply, The Struggle. It's the name of the road. That treacherous, winding pathway that takes you to the summit of the Kirkstone Pass. It's called The Struggle. And if you deviate from the road even an inch with its really steep, winding terrain, chances are very good that you're going to slide all the way back to the bottom and maybe even right into the ocean. You're not going to reach the top if you don't take the struggle. I mean, what a, what a beautifully named road. That's the idea that Paul holds on to. The Christian life is a struggle. It's a wrestling match. It's an idea that he has at the end of his life, but he develops it all the way through his life. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says to be a Christian is to be like an athlete, a wrestler, someone in training. Now, when he says life is like a struggle, what does he mean? Life is hard? I mean, you know that saying, life is hard and then you die. Not very optimistic. In fact, that's not what Paul is saying at all. Life is hard, mind you. But he's not saying life is hard. He's saying Christianity is hard. The Christian life is hard. It's a struggle. The Christian, the Christ follower, is to be like an athlete. In training, an athlete is constantly saying no to the natural impulses of themselves. What do I mean? Let, let me read you a couple of passages from two of the great theologians in history. The first is Martin Luther. Martin Luther said something like this. He says, due to original sin, sin in our lives, our own nature is so deeply curved in on itself that it fails to realize in this twisted and crooked way that it seeks 
all things, including God Himself. It seeks all things for itself. You hear that? Human nature. The ego is ravenous. It it wants everything it can get. It grabs everything that it can hold. It uses everything for its own self-interest. Let me read you the other passage. This comes from Jonathan Edwards, a brilliant man, but the language is a little more archaic. So see if you can stick with it. Edwards says, after the fall, after sin, the mind of man shrank from its greatness and extensiveness to an exceeding diminution means diminish, small, to an exceeding diminution and confinedness. Before, man's soul was under the noble principle of divine love, whereby it was, as it were, enlarged to the comprehension of all of its creatures. But as soon as we sinned, all that excellent enlargedness of the soul was gone, and it shrank to a little point, circumscribed and closely shut up within itself to the exclusion of all others and now wholly governed by narrow, selfish principles. Again, it's, it's archaic language, but, but you sort of see what, what he's saying, what Luther was saying. In every interaction, whenever you meet someone, whenever you go into a meeting, every day, every hour that you interact, you're going to operate out of one of two operating systems. One says, your life, your resources are there to serve me. The other operating system says, my life and my resources are given to serve you. Every interaction is an opportunity to test out one of those two operating systems. And what Luther and what Edwards are saying is that the first operating system, that that you're there to serve me, is the natural one. It's absolutely natural. It's deep. It's there in kids, right? You don't have to learn it in the kids. You have to unlearn it from kids. It's wired into us. It happens automatically unless you struggle against it. And if you don't struggle, every single time you have an opportunity to act in a selfish way, you will. And when you do, the world gets just a little bit smaller. You're shrinking. You're curving in on yourself until you become just like a little point. And at that little point, you're just, you're less and less able to imagine what it's like to be anybody else, less and less able to love someone else, less and less able just to get out of yourself. You're losing the largeness of your own soul, a largeness that enables you to to understand and empathize with and love other people. And it leaves you filled with self-pity and always defending yourself and always thinking nobody understands me and everything is against me and nobody loves me. And, And you just become harder and smaller and you slide all the way back down into the water. That's the struggle. C.S. Lewis says that whenever you're selfish, whenever you're operating out of that one system instead of the other, the system that feels most natural to us, you put a little mark on your soul. And that little mark makes it just a little bit easier next time to act in selfishness. And the more you do, not only does your soul shrink, but it just gets, it gets marked up. That's the struggle. That's the fight that we wage every single day. You will never finish well unless you are struggling with that. Otherwise, you'll find yourself, as you get older, 
you get harder. You get more indifferent. You get cynical. You're less and less able to love. You're more self-absorbed, self-centered, always justifying yourself. The world looks awful. Ah, this next generation, they don't know how good they got. Entitled bunch. You know, you will not finish well. Life is a struggle against the smallness of your own soul. That's the first point. Here's the next one, this next great sort of governing worldview that Paul had. Death is an adventure. But that's not language we use for death, is it? Have a look again at those same verses, 6, 7, and 8. Let me draw out one more point. Remember, Paul says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. The time for my departure is near. Already being poured out. The word there actually is the word spendo, which is exactly what it is. My life is spent. I'm used up. I've been, I've been poured out. Uh, but the word departure to me is the fascinating one because it means literally to untie. It's a metaphor for dying, isn't it? My departure, the time for my departure is near. But the language that's used is the language that you would use if you're down on the dock and you're untiring the mooring cleat for a boat, getting ready to let it sail off the shore. When a boat unmoors and goes off, on the one hand, it's a sad thing. It's a departure. It's hard for those who are left behind. But on the other hand, it's an exciting thing. It's the first stage in a new adventure. And that's, for Paul, the balance, the balanced viewpoint of death that, that's so essential to finishing well. Now, as I said, the, the statements that he makes here at the very end in 2 Timothy are statements that he has made throughout his life. If you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, you see something about the balance that Paul is talking about. People have lost loved ones. They've died. He speaks to them and he says, I want you to grieve, but I don't want you to grieve like those who have no hope. You see the balance? It's not a hard teaching. It doesn't say don't grieve. It doesn't say keep a stiff upper lip. He says, no, you need to grieve, but don't grieve like you're hopeless. If you want to see the balance illustrated most dramatically, you see it in Jesus and the account of, of Lazarus' death. Lazarus was a close friend, among the very closest of friends that Jesus had on earth. He gets word that his men, his close friend is fatally ill. He tries to make his way to Bethany as quickly as possible, but it looks like he's too late. He gets there, and Lazarus is dead. What's he going to do? Uh, I mean, how's he going to respond? He's not stoic. Is he going to say, well, now, ladies and gentlemen, let's just keep up our spirits, you know, stiff upper lip and all. He's, <laughs> this is not a Victorian gentleman. What does he do? In fact... He doesn't say anything. In one of the shortest but most telling verses of the Bible, it says simply, you know the one, Jesus wept. wept. He wept. He's not calm about death. He's not stoic in the presence of death. And after weeping, he goes to the tomb of Lazarus, and it says that he bellowed in anger. It says literally, he was snorting with anger. He was mad at death. I have on my shelves, you probably do too, 
a whole bunch of books that are written to try and help people face death. And books that are written from that perspective of the secular world all would have something to this effect. You need to accept that death is a natural part of life in order to move on. If you buy that, something of the humanity of your own soul will shrivel up and die inside of you. Because you know, human beings know, that when somebody dies, it's not just like a, a stone dropping to the bottom of the pond or fertilizer for the next generation in the great circle of life. A human being is not ephemeral, not inconsequential, not just a wave on the sea. Dylan Thomas was right. He said, you need to rage against the dying of the light. So Jesus did. He went to the tomb of Lazarus and he was angry. He raged. This is the son of God. And he confronted death. You should grieve at death. It's okay to cry out and wail at the presence of death, but don't despair. Don't, don't be despondent. Don't, don't be cowed. Don't be bowed. You, you don't give up. Why? Because look what happens next. Jesus, of course, he raises Lazarus from the dead. Why? The Bible is quite clear why. It's a sign. It's a reminder. What you see here is what you will see amplified a millionfold at the end of time. Oh, my goodness. I mean, think about the hope. If you believe in the gospel, if you know who you are in Jesus, you know about the resurrection, you know he's the firstborn from the dead, but you're part of the rest. Then all of the wonderful promises that follow, they're yours to name and claim. George Herbert once said that death used to be an executioner, but now because of the gospel, he's nothing more than a gardener. All that happens is like a tulip bulb, you get stuck in the ground a little while, and then you come forth flourishing in a beauty that you'd never known before. Dietrich Bonhoeffer as he was waiting trial and his own execution, he wrote that death is the supreme festival on the road to freedom. And of course, the most famous statement I think of all of them is the one that Paul himself wrote. 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, death, he says. Ah, oh, death. Where's your sting? Grave, where's your victory? Those are taunting words. It's Paul saying, come on, death. Give it your best shot. Is that all you've got? Because... What you do to diminish me will only enhance me. If you try and destroy me, you will make me something more beautiful than I ever was before. I mean, do we have any idea what it's going to be like? A resurrection. We, but we can only imagine, right? Think about that. Death is no longer an executioner, just a gardener. Think about that. Think about the world from the point of view of a plant, if you're in the garden. You have five senses. A plant doesn't have most of them. Can't see, can't, can't hear, can't taste. But I mean, there is a sense of touch that plants have, though, right? Maybe they have that. Can you imagine out of the ground of your first life, awakening to a new world where you have a thousand senses, all fully alive to the wonder and beauty and majesty and adventure of God and tingling with, with excitement and joy forever? Death is a glorious adventure. It's, it's a voyage. Narnia had it right. So did Lord of the Rings, incidentally. At the epic end of the long saga, when most of the main characters are dead, both of those great stories end on the dock. 
pushing off towards the next great adventure. In fact, Narnia ends this way. It says, all of their life in the world, all of their adventures had only been the cover and the title page. For now, at long last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which will go on forever, and in every chapter is better than the one before. Here's the third perspective. History is a masterpiece. I'm going to be kind of brief on this one because this is something we've touched on for a couple of weeks now. But would you notice something? 2 Timothy 4, verse 16, the last part of verse 17. Paul's talking about his defense. At my first defense, he says. Remember, he'd stood trial. He's in prison. He's being tried. He went to hearing. He was being prosecuted. He says, in my first defense, I was delivered from the lion's den. Just a fancy way of saying... Hey, I was acquitted. I got off. He says, at my first defense, I was delivered from the lion's den. Now the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack. What's he saying? The first time I was acquitted, it's about to happen again. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack. Every time they attempt it, I'm going to get off. I'll be just fine. That's not what he's saying. He knows his execution is imminent. As for me, I'm already being poured out. The time of my departure is near. So what does he mean? Verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from evil attack. Read the rest of the sentence. And will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Here's what he's saying. God will always rescue me. Sometimes he will rescue me from suffering. Sometimes he will rescue me through suffering. Remember, the only disease that can really kill you, the only thing that can really destroy you, are those little marks on your soul that shrivel you to the point that you become this inconsequential, just hellish creature, stuck in all of your littleness and smallness. But when God rescues you, when he comes to you, when he embraces you, what he wants is for your own good. He wants to turn you into something great. So here's what Paul is going to say. He says, sometimes... God has rescued me from death, but it's also possible he might rescue me through death. It doesn't matter, because in the end, what do I want? I want to be safe in his heavenly hands. History is not inconsequential. It's not random. It's, It's not full of sound and fury, a tale spun out by an idiot. Boy, I just misquoted Shakespeare pretty badly there, didn't I? (laughs) History is God's masterpiece. It's a tapestry woven together by him. Paul proclaims that truth probably never more strongly than in that verse we looked at last week, that one that ought to be underlined and highlighted and and memoed in your Bible. We know, Romans 8, 28, we know that in all things God is at work for the good of those who love him and who've been called by him for his good purposes. God is going to rescue you. He's going to rescue you from bad things or through bad things. But either way, he's going to rescue you. History is a tapestry. It's a masterpiece. It's not random. God is at work. Here's the last of those four perspectives. This too will be brief, but it's really kind of neat. You remember we said at the very beginning that 
the book of Acts ends abruptly. If we think it's the story of Paul, it feels like it's unresolved. Did he get a fair trial? Did he actually appear before Caesar? Did he get to speak the words of the gospel in the highest corridors of power in the Roman world? Luke doesn't tell you. All he says is this. The gospel's being preached with boldness, without hindrance. Why end that way again? This is not the book of Paul. This is the story of the gospel. The progress of the gospel. And for Luke to end it this way is his way of saying, look, look at all the stuff the world threw at us. Look at the opposition. Look, you can imprison people, you can kill people, but you can never imprison the gospel. The gospel will not be stopped. It's alive. The gospel cannot be stopped. It breaks through barriers. It will always find a way. You can kill its preachers. You can throw up all kinds of barriers. You can put Christians in prison. It doesn't matter. The gospel will find a way. It is the single most powerful, most vital force in the earth. And it has broken through everything now for centuries. Every barrier, every government, every wave of persecution, every marginalization, it breaks through. That's the message of the book of Acts. The gospel will not be stopped. Paul knew in the end there was only one thing that really mattered. You know what it is? Have a look if you still have your Bibles there. Verse 16, 2 Timothy 4. My first defense, he said, no one came to my support. Everyone deserted me. But, but the Lord stood there at my side and the Lord gave me strength. What's the one thing he needed at the end of his life in order to finish well? Friendship with God. I mean, he didn't just believe in God in general as some elaborate theological principle. He's saying, I felt him right there beside me. He's not just talking about the omnipresence of God. You know, God is there on every mountaintop, at the bottom of the sea, on every hilltop. No, God is there at my side as a friend, tender in the way that he comforts me in the face of adversity, right there with me. The one thing that will allow anyone in any circumstance to endure and to finish well is the awareness that you are not alone. It's not just a generalized belief in God. It's not the the experience of God because I'm trying to be a good person and occasionally I get inspired. How do you get it? How, how do you get that, that deep down assurance that, that we're like that? That, that God is as close as, as the breath in my own lungs. How do you get it? Paul got it through the gospel. The good news. The life of Jesus, who at its, at its very climactic moment, John 15, the night before he's about to die, the gospel says that Jesus gathered together his disciples and listen to what he said. I don't just call you my servants. I call you my friends. And I'm laying down my life for you. The arms of Jesus stretched out for you, friends, 
pinned to a cross for you. Not servants, not subservient. Friends. Doesn't matter that you've been imperfect. Of course you've been imperfect. But at your moment of greatest need, He's there for you. He will be there for you. Paul's final words to Timothy, probably the final words that that he wrote, feel kind of mundane. He says, do your best if you can to get here before winter. And I'm sure all he meant was this, you ought to hurry up. Uh, If you're planning on coming, uh, hurry up and get here before the winter storms rage and you can't get here at all. So we come to the end of this series on the book of Acts and the message this morning. Can I say the same thing? Come before it's too late. Come before winter. Whatever God may be saying to you now, whatever He may have been nudging and prompting into your life over these past months, whatever you have to do to get those perspectives into your life right now, Do it before it's too late. Before your heart hardens a little more, your soul shrinks a little smaller, your conviction wears off, come before winter. Don't delay. Would you let me pray with you? Again, I don't want to fill this time just with words. Let this be a moment between between you and Jesus. God, wherever we are in our lives, whether this is a season of joy and optimism or or it's been one of misery and suffering, we don't want to be alone. we think through the course of our lives, for some of us it's hard to even imagine thinking about an ending. For others it feels pretty close. But wherever we are, we want to end well. We want to finish well. Boy, we want to strain forward and look ahead with wide-eyed wonder to the great voyage that begins next. So, Lord, I want to come alongside anybody in the room who may be leaning forward and straining in and trying to understand what this all means and and how can it happen, how can it be real. And, And if that's you, I'd love to just speak a prayer with you. Lord Jesus, I may not know much, but I want to know you. And I know that's enough. I've tried doing it without you, and I want to live my life forever now with you. I don't want to be alone. I want to claim the promises of your goodness. I recognize the love and the sacrifice of the cross and, and how, how incredibly and mysteriously that somehow that was for me. I name it and I accept it. I place my life in your hands. I,
want to live the rest of my days struggling for something that matters and knowing that I don't do it alone, that I'm side by side with my Lord, my Savior, my Master, and my friend. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.